Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I wonder if I might ask a favour of you. The podcast has gained a very low following, with downloads and listeners well above average, and it's even been added to the National Sound Archive at the British Library. It would be wonderful if more people got to hear about the podcast, and you can help by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Over 42% of all of the 33,000 downloads so far have come from Apple, and leaving a rating and review there really helps the podcast gain traction and visibility, and really help it reach a wider and bigger audience. I would appreciate your help, and thank you for being such loyal listeners. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Dutch conductor who, after spells as music director in two German opera houses, has gone on to conduct in both opera house and the concert stage worldwide. Since recording this interview, he's been announced as the next chief conductor of the Belgian National Orchestra, starting in 2022. It's a real pleasure to welcome Anthony Hermos. Anthony, it is lovely to meet you, to see you and to hear you. How are you? I am fine. Thank you, Mike. Yes, I'm in Amsterdam now at the moment. I just returned from a concert in Groningen, which was for the radio. And now I'm sitting here and chatting with you. Wonderful. Um, we all have our own stories about last March. I was actually in a car driving south from Birmingham to London to go and work with the BBC Concert Orchestra on a late stand-in for Bram Toby. When I got the phone call saying, Mike, it's off, turn around, go home. You were working at English National Opera, putting together a production of Rusalka. How near to the first performance were you? Uh, and how did it sort of come through to you that, you know, it was going to be off? Um, how did it all happen for you? It was, as if for everybody, it was a very strange period. Hmm. Um, I remember we had the Zitzprobe, at yeah. that morning, we had the first sitz probe. I had an Oxford lecture and a sitz probe. And um, before, uh, I had the messages of the Netherlands came already through because the Netherlands closed down the Thursday before already. Uh -huh. So what happened? We were rehearsing in the UK at ENO, and I had to show a Figaro with Opera North on the Saturday in the Lowry in Manchester. Yeah. So all my friends already were in kind of lockdown. And I remember walking down the streets of Manchester, feeling so incredibly privileged that we still had an opportunity to perform the Figaro. Yeah. And the production of Opera Nord was very special anyway. And I remember that night very well, and it will always stay in my memory. And then Monday was... Uh, lecture and Zitzprobe, and we were two weeks before the first night, and then we, we got the message from ENO, um, yeah, it's going to be it. And it was very special also because it was the first day for the team in the theater. Uh -huh. So they were lightning. Klaus, our, our set designer, was lightning, and he made as many pictures as he could of the production from Tatiana Gurbacha, which was on the way to be, in my opinion, a very, very beautiful production of the Rusalka. I mean, the piece is gorgeous anyway, but the production was also with, with singers like Corinne Winters and David but Philip, and it, it was on the, such a good road in such a good energy. So it was, um, yeah, it was a real disappointment that that happened. And are there plans for it to come back in the future? You know, um, 
told us it's high on the list mm. of productions they want to get along again. But yeah, they have a lot to, to solve, of course, at the moment themselves and, and uh, like any other company. So we'll see. But it's on the list, uh, I was told. <laughs> so we'll see. Well, talking of lists, as you know, as a listener to the podcast, I have a list of questions. And the first one is always, when did music come into your life? How did it first come into your life? What instruments did you play? And all of that. When did music first happen for you? All of that. Okay. <laughs> um, when did music first happen to me? Well, it happened through my father. Mm. My father um, was the conductor of the church choir uh, in our hometown, Oosterhout, in the south of the Netherlands. It's a little town and the church was quite big. And my father is my first example in conducting. Mm. Um he was very special in, in a way. He, um, he had three years of music education with violin and uh, a, course, a little course of beating technique. But he somehow he managed to make a church choir sound better than they could. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, made, he was really a people manager, ma- making them come to the rehearsal. He started with nine persons and he ended up with 45 after wow. 20 years. And not only older people, but really also young people in, in the chorus. So he is, for me, my first conductor and example. And when I was a little kid, six years old, I landed behind the piano. We <laughs> First, we had a little organ in our home, and then I learned the notes and all these things. And then my father all, already quickly said, yeah, you go to a real piano teacher, well, which I did. Then I joined a youth choir which was very important for me in my life it was the the dutch nightingales they were situated also in the south and i was starting to sing and but my vocal qualities are mm, (laughs) let's say uh you can uh discuss uh have a big discussion about that the conductor of the chorus um noticed already very quickly that it was a maybe a good idea um, to get this beautiful alto voice of mine behind the piano, <laughs> which he did. And I started to uh, accompany all the rehearsals, uh, reading from sight, but also listening. Okay, it's it's a soprano who needs a little help. Okay. And, and so I started to be the fixed accompanier of that fantastic chorus. And we making we were making tours, and, and and all my big youth friends are uh, are are the people from that chorus, mm. and um, yeah, and and I studied piano with different teachers. I had uh, one very crucial experience, which brought me later to opera. When I was thirteen years old, I had a, a, my second piano teacher. He was a wonderful accompanist. He is still accompanying here in Holland, the radio radio choir, Ben Martin Weyand. And he took me to a piano dress rehearsal of Carmen. Mm. And I was 13 years old. I have never seen any opera before and I had no clue. But he said, can you turn, turn the pages, please, for me? Well, of course I could. And so I went along and um, uh, it starts. And really, Mike, after five pages, I think I didn't turn anymore. I was only looking on stage. What the hell was happening there? And I was 
felt totally in love with his music and with with yeah the the fact that so many people created such a beautiful show well then i uh i went to a gymnasium as they called it then in holland here and at a certain point my second piano teacher who was very generous also said you know what anthony you should go to the uh, music conservatory and you should go to that teacher and that teacher was jacques de tierge jacques de tierge is a famous piano guru in Belgium, had many people in the Queen Elizabeth competition, like Robert Grollo, um, uh, like Eliane Rodriguez, he's still coaching life over Ansnes, Enrico Pace, uh, um, and he was my piano teacher, and that was a crucial experience for me. Mm. Um, he shaped music for me in a way that, well, that I had never experienced before, he also helped me, um, maybe not, uh, not conscious, but subconscious, to shape music in a way of a conductor. Mm-hmm. He, he treated the piano like an orchestra. And I think there's the base for my orchestra interest, let's <laughs> say it like that. And um, I first started in... How do you call that in English? It's a preliminary course. You are not still entering the conservatory, but the year before. It's a preparation thing. You don't really have anything like that. You either start at at conservatory or you don't. I mean, yeah, I suppose you could call it a preparatory year. I mean... Yes, um, we have a preparatory... Yeah, we have preparatory courses in in Holland. And so I ended my gymnasium. And at the same time, I was studying in this preparatory course and then um, then was another interesting moment in my life because when you finish your gymnasium then everybody asks what are you going to study Mm. and I was quite good at piano um, uh, doing a lot with it but my father and my mother they were not really convinced that music should be my profession (laughs) they loved music they they uh, motivated me and supported me in every way but they said anthony you have so many interests in their opinion a musician like a pianist or an organist because i played the organ also in churches of course mm. could end up as uh, playing at a wedding of somebody for 25 guilders at that moment still yeah. <laughs> and a bottle of wine and uh, maybe they ask them what you do in your daily life. Um, and so they said, music is a fantastic hobby. They saw also a lot of musicians who were at some point quite frustrated about not getting the career they wanted to have. And they, wa- they said, okay, you are a man of so many interests. What do you like more? Well, I am a man of, <laughs> of many interests. So I started studying information management which is completely something else. It was also in Tilburg. I studied uh, uh, in Tilburg and information management. And I still kept going in the preparatory course for piano. And I loved it, information management. It it stimulated my brain. It it gave me so much to think about. We had a math and we had um, 
uh, economics and uh, and we had a law and 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 programming of computers which i like mm-hmm. and then at some point after the first year my piano teacher said so anthony when are you going to enter the conservatory i said yes but i'm studying <laughs> at the university and he said oh don't worry just come and then we'll see what happens and i said yes why why not So, so do you think that your one year or your your few months of studying information management has helped you at all as a conductor going, I mean, you mentioned things there like, you know, statistics, economics, uh, all of these sort of things that, you know, when you're running an opera house, which you did later on in Dessau, do you think that that helped or, or do you wish you'd stayed a little bit longer and it maybe it could have helped even more? Well, Actually, I finished my information oh, management. Really, I did. Yes, mm. I finished my. I did it parallel, and it was a lot of work, yeah. but I loved it because you know what? I I I never believe in 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 too much fanatism in one side. I think it's always the balance who makes it. And for yeah. me, the balance was so great in the sense. Okay, on the university, I I was the the artist. Yeah. Let's say like that. And on on the conservatory, I was the businessman with my with my suitcase, and <laughs> so and I have to say, for me personally, it worked. The the two worlds kept each other fresh. Mm. That that worked for me very well. I even worked for half a year in the information management. But then that's another story for the conducting. And <laughs> there I mentioned uh, Jacques van Steen, my first conducting teacher, or my conducting teacher, yeah. who played a decisive role for me in my in my life uh, as a conductor. At uh, at a certain point, uh, I graduated also at piano, and I have to say what you say. Um, maybe maybe I first finish finish the story yeah. of. My education, and then I tell you what information management brought me for the opera house. Mm. Um, at some point, I was playing the piano concerto of Grieg with an orchestra, and with an amateur orchestra, very good amateur orchestra. And the conductor cancelled the night that we were going to rehearse. So I was called, sorry, Anthony, the rehearsal is not taking place tonight. Um, because the conductor is ill. I said, oh, come on, guys. I want to play that concerto. Let's just come together and let's do it. So actually, okay. They said, if you like that, we can do. And so I went there and I, I conducted from the keyboard, kind of. I made it work. And there I noticed that I have a, a very big interest in working with groups making the music sound as beautiful as possible and and sharing it with everybody. So I knocked on the door of the department of orchestra conducting in Tilburg, where Jacques van Steen was Mm. uh, the the professor. And uh, he said, yes, okay, you can come in my class. Um, Let's see. Next week, Dvorak 9, you play well the piano, you play it on the piano. I said, okay, yes, perfect. Do you have a, a reduction score for me? Uh-huh, reduction score? No, we play here from full score. <laughs> and I, okay, I said, arrogant as I was at that time, 
oh, fine for me, fine for me. And then, and then at home, I thought, oh my God, what did I say? So I started practicing a lot. And, and I managed next week to play uh, Dvorak 9. Okay, great. Next week, Beethoven 5. Oh my God. So, but I learned to read very quickly a score by yes. doing that, by having to do that. He forced me for that. Then I did entrance exam. And um, then a very special moment happened. My final exam of my first year, I remember it as the day of yesterday. Jacques was sitting after the exam uh, opposite to me with the director. And he said, Anthony, you did a very good exam for the level of your conducting and, and all things around. Um, I have to let you go to the second year, but I will not. I will not let you to the second year. So I was a little bit, oh, what is this? <laughs> no, he said, and he said the famous words, you are doing much too much. As a conductor, you need to focus. Mm. In the Netherlands, the Netherlands is a small territory. If you say a word in Maastricht in the south, tomorrow they know it in Groningen. Yeah. In the Netherlands, your last name needs to be Karajan. <laughs> and maybe then you have a little luck that they invite you once. And of course, you don't have so much experience. So they say, well, he doesn't have so much experience, which is true, of course. Yeah. So to make a career in Holland is really difficult. So I think you should go abroad. Mm. You should go to a German opera house. That is a special system. Um, you play well the piano. So if you go there and you like that system, you will stay there a long time. And if you don't like it, you will be back in two days. <laughs> and, and that was very important for me. I organized for you a voluntariat. Um, how do you say that? Um, is that yeah, it's like, yeah, probably. It's like a, a he's organized for you uh, an internship, a, a voluntary yeah, an position. Internship. Yeah. Yes, I organized for you. Uh, I organized for you an internship in Hagen, which is a middle theater just under Dortmund yeah. in the Ruhrgebiet of Germany. Yeah. Um, and I know the new general music director there, Georg Fritsch. I know him very well. And he was also already once in our classes. He saw me playing. And you can go there for two months. And uh, he has a vacancy for two months um, for somebody who wanted to, want to have unpaid leave or something. Just go and have a look. So I went there. And I played 25 hours a day piano <laughs> as they do. I accompanied auditions. I uh, accompanied stage rehearsals. I studied roles with the singers. I, uh, I worked in the library. I gave cues to the light man. I, oh, you can't think of it of I did it mm. for two months. And I loved it, Mike. I really loved it to be part of that team, to build really a special performance and then every night a different performance the one night you have don carlos the other night you have, uh, other night you have uh, electra it, it was it was amazing mm. and after two months the uh, intendant called me and he said um, what are you doing the rest of the year 
And I said, well, I go back to Netherlands and study. No, 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 no. You stay here. He mm. said, we want you to stay. So he offered me a, a job. Uh, very bad paid, I have to say. <laughs> but he offered me a job. And um, the general music director, the general music director, he said, Anthony, nice that you stay. I also give you something to conduct. Mm. And he, he became my second conducting teacher. My first uh, performance was then in December, Land des Lechens from Lehar, uh, in my much too big tales. And yeah. my, uh, I went in the pit and I asked, of course, as you do, when is the rehearsal? And it, but it was the 20 performance or something of, of uh, Landeslechen. So uh, everybody said, no, there is no rehearsal. You know it. We know it. So you just go. Now, mm. And Mike, I can tell you as, you, as you will understand, then you learn a lot in three hours. Yeah, I'm sure you do. And, yeah. <laughs> and it was fantastic yeah. because the orchestra was very, yeah, they are used to getting young people in the pit. So they, they, they just went a little bit more in the front of their seat. And and now it was just I, I I conducted and I loved it. And at the end of the performance, Georg Fritsch was standing there. He gave me a compliment. He said, "Very well done." You know that one passage that went wrong. You went with your baton to the left. You should go to the right at that point. And by the way, there you should not follow the singer. There you should lead the singer. There you should follow the singer. Aha. Next week, you're conducting again. Aha. Okay. <laughs> so I had the possibility to have the feedback directly and to, to immediately the next week try it out. Yeah. So, yeah, that was for me an amazing time. And I learned a lot. So I was conducting more and more there in that opera house. So it's down yeah. to Jack Van Steen that you basically got, uh, well, what would be a polite way of putting it? Um, sort of inducted into the Kapellmeister system of Germany, um, which is a system yes. that, that Kevin John Edesay and I talked about. He called it brutal. Would you call it, it brutal? Is. It is. Yeah, well, there we are. Um, the, <laughs> and the amount of time that you spend playing the piano, but also, as you've just said, being thrown in at the, in the deep end with performances straight away and learning all of this stuff. How long were you there in Hagen doing that? I was and, and I was I'm sure I read that you jumped up the, the ladder as well. Yeah, it was very special there. I, I started then as an internship, mm. then as a repetitor, and after a year, the Studienleiter, which is the head of music, uh, actually, um, he left, and they offered me the position of head of music. And I said, oh, so, sorry, guys. Uh, I always thought the head of music knows all the operas uh, of the world, uh, and I only know the five we did last year and Carmen. And for the rest, I don't know anything. <laughs> yes, but you can organize, they said. And that's true. <laughs> I know that. Yeah. I can organize. So, and a head of music, student lighter, he is responsible for all the rehearsal planning, etc., of the musical department. So, well, they said, just try it. And if it works, you stay. If, you don't, if it don't work, we find a solution. But it worked. So... I learned there how an opera house functions, which I can say is still a base for me in my work in any opera house of the world. I know how, how the things work together. And, and then um, the, after three years, the first Kapellmeister went away. The orchestra said, okay, Anthony, you conduct already so much. Um, can you do the audition for first Kapellmeister? Well, I did. I got a job. 
So I got an own production of Don Giovanni, an own production of, of Carmen, an own production of Barbara of Seville and all these kind of things. And then after five years, I was first Kapellmeister. The GMD, the General Music Director, got another job and they were left with a vacancy for the General Music Director. So they were trying out several people. The orchestra didn't like that. The orchestra didn't like the other. You know how that works. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly in an orchestra meeting, um, the orchestra committee put up the question, we have a problem and can we just vote? Can we count the votes if we would propose Anthony as our next general music director? So they voted and I didn't get any vote against me, which was mm. quite surprising after five years and <laughs> after starting from an internship. So they didn't say anything to me they went to the Minister of Culture, which in German cities is responsible for the contract of the Intendant and of the General Music Director. And um, he called me to him and uh, uh, he said, do you want to be our uh, next uh, game day? And I said, well, whew, I have to think about it. <laughs> because I was at that time, I was 28. And I started at 29 then in the end. And I thought, okay, I have an intendant who is much older than I am. Mm -hmm. And we have to find a way to deal with that because otherwise, I mean, I, I am a willing person and I, probably I have some talent too, but I have no experience at all. And to, to lead such a uh, institution, it's risky. Mm. So uh, we ended up uh, with, an, with a contract uh, where I had uh, uh, several rights also to the intendant and also a letter because I heard many rumors about reductions of budget and mm. reductions of jobs in the orchestra. I said, I only sign my contract if you um, is, uh, confirm in my contract, I have 65 players now. When my contract ends, I still have 65 players in the orchestra. Mm. And first reaction, of course, was, who do you think you are? And I said, <laughs> yes, I know I'm nobody, but yeah. I know this is the only way it's going to work. Yeah. So first, we had a real fight. And then in the end, he said, OK. <laughs> so the well, orchestra well, heard, of course, about that. And, yeah. and, and they said, wow, you didn't sell your soul to the devil for a career, but you were really um, fighting for us, which I was. What, what we found out was that you were a man of principle and you didn't want to see your orchestra reduced, which is first and foremost very important. Um, by not having anybody voting against you, uh, you know, to a point I'm not surprised, of course as an orchestral musician and we're both smiling at each other, of course I am surprised because I know what musicians are like. But the reason why I'm not surprised is that they saw you grow and that's the point. I've had the similar situation with the CBSO where they saw me conduct basically one of the first times I ever conducted. And if you keep improving, they're going to stick with you. And if they see that yeah. there's potential and they see that there's somebody there who they can work with and they're happy to work with, they're going to carry on working with you. Anytime I ever feel depressed about my life as a conductor, I look down at a spreadsheet which tells me I've conducted the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra over 250 times. Well, I can't be Whoa. that bad, you know, I'm, you know <laughs> exactly. 
And that's my point, is the fact they've seen you from the very beginnings and go through all of that and work hard. Let's face it, Capelmeister system is, is hard. And they've seen you work and work and work and improve and improve. And therefore, just one more step isn't going to harm anybody, you know, um, at least musically. Whether you can deal with being the game day of a, of a whole opera house in a town and dealing with the bureaucracy, you know that's <laughs> that's not that's not their worry. They 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 think musically it's one more step. I'm sure he'll do it, and you did, and you know that's why I'm not not surprised at all. Um, before we leave Hagen and before we leave mentors and teachers, you mentioned that Georg Fritsch used to give you tips. You know, go to the left and not to the right. Um, did he have uh, other than comments like that after performances, did you seek his advice or did he give advice on conducting technique? Um, what was his, was he very much into the technique of conducting or was he, or, you know, was he somebody who would look at the whole, you know, the scores and uh, as well as looking at, you know, directions of, of how to do it? Um, how, what, how did he teach you? Um, he was also a very important mentor for me in the, in the sense um, I worked very closely with him also when I was his assistant mm. uh, in when he was gay and day. Then yeah. I worked for him. I worked with the singers. I'm pre prepared everything. But he was in many ways very important for me. He has a very, very special sense for sound. Mm. He was a solo cellist in Gera and he played a lot in Staatskapelle Dresden. So he was really emerged in the German sound. Yes. And for him, it was extremely important, the relation between gesture and sound. Mm. How does something sound? Not only the safe pair of hands, yeah. but how does something sound and how can, how can you change the sound with your, with your hands and, yeah. and, and with your energy? And, and, and he was um, in that way, very important for me. He also, also when I was first Kapellmeister, he was sitting in my rehearsals and coming afterwards to me, I said, you know, Anthony, you are from the Netherlands and you're speaking German. Um, if you say that, you are getting away with it. As a German, you would not have get, been getting away with that. <laughs> yeah? Don't say that anymore to an orchestra like that. Right. Or I was in a rehearsal. Oh, you wanted to get that together. Eh? It doesn't work like that. Do first this, then that, and that, and then you will have it. Mm. Aha. There's tips like that, to which you really want to have um, in a conservatory, mm. where you where you are. But I, I always call it, um, my first job in Hagen is my extended conservatory. Mm. At least the first five years until I was chief conductor myself. The first five years were my extended conservatory. Conducting in the praxis, getting feedback from somebody who knows what what he is talking about and having good relations with players and a good concert master who said anthony this is really better in four okay <laughs> thank you very much yeah and yeah, yeah. and well to come back to your question from before did the information management help you at some point i can only say yes yeah because i was very young and we had a, a ceo there uh, for the money of course and and we were talking about the budget with the orchestra committee and me and and i remember that it was about a big project we wanted to do and he said there is no money look this is the budget of the orchestra and he put a spreadsheet in front of us and i 
kind of with a with a with the sense I I thought this is wrong. So I went a little bit clear and I said, "Sorry, Mr. CEO, I think this need not to be at the left side of the balance, but maybe at the right side of the balance." And by the way, you're counting this like that, and you should, in my humble opinion, I have nothing, no, nothing about. It. I think you should count it like that because the, so maybe you just revisit this thing one time. And the August committee, their mouths were open how do you know i said yeah sorry i studied this um so, and <laughs> it never happened again yeah. to tell. Yeah. so i yeah that in that way it helped me it helped me to think also analytical and logical uh, and also to have in the communication with with people uh, we learned also a lot about communication how do you deal with people because in the end conducting is a lot about that Absolutely. I mean, uh, interesting that you mentioned about the for your first five years being like your extended conservatoire. I think my 22 years as a player basically is my conservatoire study as a conductor. You know, I've, I've literally played for anybody and everybody in 22 years. And, and you saw how not to do it, how to do it, how the great ones managed to, with the turn of one word in a sentence, managed to get an orchestra to play wonderfully. And how one word from a bad conductor could have the whole orchestra up in, up in arms quickly and all <laughs> everything to do with it the technical side and everything and I think you're right that that extended period whether you're an assistant to a, a conductor who's willing to share and willing to show and willing to teach and willing to be a mentor I think it's really important at this point I asked Anthony about his time as music director at Dessau Opera in Germany and specifically about conducting Wagner's ring cycle he told me how they tricked the local government into agreeing to stage the ring and how he went about studying the score with the invaluable help of a close friend of Carlos Kleiber. If you want to hear that 10-minute discussion, I've turned it into a Patreon-exclusive bonus mini-episode. For as little as £5 a month, you can get access to this mini-episode as well as all of the previous mini-episodes. You will also get a monthly bulletin podcast from me about my career as well as advanced news about this podcast. You also get an interview once a month with a prominent person from the classical music world who has dealings with conductors, as well as articles, essays, and all sorts of other conducting-based content. The details of how to join are in the show notes below, and I'd love to see you subscribe to the Supporters Club of A Mic on the Podium very soon. Now, back to my chat with Anthony Hermus. After you leave Dessau, um, we're basically talking about now. You spend a lot of your time in opera. Obviously, we talked about English National Opera, but also your principal guest at Opera North. Um, but you're also principal guest of the North Netherlands Orchestra and also an artistic advisor of the National Youth Orchestra of the Netherlands. This is a question I've asked quite a lot of opera conductors, but I'm going to change it slightly for you. If you could have an ideal year, how much time would you spend in the opera house and how much time would you spend? Um, on the concert platform doing symphonic work. Um, and and how do you see an ideal year go, going from one to the other? Or do you would you like to do six months opera then six months symphonic? How, how would it work for you? Um, opera is something special for me. And I like to think music always, doesn't matter which repertoire, to think dramatically. Yes. I always end up with making some kind of story in my mind or some kind of way of making the drama really clear. So if you ask me, uh, my ideal season would be half-half. 
let's mm -hmm. say two productions or maybe two productions and a revival somewhere. And then for the rest, symphonic repertoire, which I love, of course, too. Mm -hmm. And I'm, which I'm also very dedicated to. Uh, the youth work, which you are referring to, is also very close to my heart. Um, since 2011, I work regularly with the National Youth Orchestra of the Netherlands, which is the best youth orchestra of the Netherlands, and which is a fantastic organization for the development of young musicians. And, mm -hmm. and these are always one of the most special weeks of the year. The first day is most of the times kind of a catastrophe because you think, oh my God, how are we going to play Heldenleben? Yeah. But at the end, the last days and, and the concerts, they are always full of energy. And I have to say, most of the times in my projects on such a level that many professional orchestras uh, could be jealous. Yeah. I agree with you. I, I do the same with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra and, and some of the concerts we've done, you know, reviewers have said, if you shut your eyes, you would never know. You would literally no. never know but that you were listening to an orchestra of under 21s or, you know, yes. uh, and, and as you say, the energy that they give off, but it's not just in the concerts, it's in the, it's in the rehearsals. You know, it gives you some energy. You leave days like that tired, but not dead on your feet because, you know, they well, give you so much energy back. Um and, and also, my last experience was with the Australian Youth Orchestra. I was a few weeks in Melbourne, and uh, they asked, can you put, hang on another week and do the Australian Youth Orchestra Mala 4? I said, yes, okay. And I remember they worked already three days, and I came in, and I conducted the whole thing through. I went to the rehearsal, and oh, let's see what happens. Eh? But <laughs> it, the first run, really, Mike, it was better than the last time I did it with with another orchestra and yeah. i thought oh my god and i have three more days mm. which make me think okay so the only limit here now on this whole thing it's me yeah. if i have ideas if i inspire them it's only getting better mm. and which was the challenge and i think i succeeded in that yeah. but <laughs> but it, it was it was magic it was really magic that mm. with you and and yeah for youth orchestras, I have a, I said it, uh, I have a soft spot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm now going to the RNCM uh, when uh, when it all works out with the quarantine and things like that at the end of June, just because I, yeah, I just love working with young people. Oh, I've just spent a week in Glasgow at the Royal Conservatory of Scotland working with students, but I also uh, worked with the conducting students there. And I know that you're visiting professor at the Amsterdam Conservatoire. Um, how important is teaching conducting? To do who from the past, be it Jack or be it Georg Fritsch or even Richard Trimborne, who uh, do you think you you know you, have you taken things from them that you now use as a teacher? Um, uh, what's your teaching style like? If you were to give me a conducting lesson, Anthony. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting one. <laughs> um, I started teaching. I started really teaching now. I think two and a half years ago. Hmm. I was asked by the conservatory. There was a was a job here in Amsterdam, and uh, they wanted me to uh, to apply for the job. And I said, "Sorry, I can't." Uh, okay, what can you offer? Okay, I can offer visiting guests. Okay, we'll do that. Um, my style: first, I always prepared everything. Yeah, and 
And but I thought, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> I am now just watching, yeah. watching, feeling what's happening. And the thing is, I see quite quickly why something is not working. Huh. And I ask myself always the question, what do you actually do at that spot? And sometimes you see, ah, this works for me. Hmm. Uh, and you try to explain it to a student and you see it doesn't work for him. So you have to change. I think the good thing, what I learned from Jacques was he learned a proper technique in which you in any case could survive in front of any orchestra. And that is gold because you know where to go back to when things get difficult. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I think that's the first thing I want to give back to my students to have a kind of self-control and, and also a knowledge about what gesture does mean what or what can I get with what gesture. Then also, it's very important for me to develop the sense of sound Mm. For an, for a student, how does a gesture sound? Or, um, and I think it's also very important to work in detail on the score, how the student thinks the score should should sound. Mm. Because I notice in in very in in many moments that step is forgotten. Mm. And I think to develop the imagination of a student about a certain score is one of the best or, or the most important things you need to do. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's great. I have two colleagues here in Amsterdam uh, at Spanjaard and Karel de Zeure, and we form a great team together because teaching conducting is something you can't grasp it. No. You can't grasp it. I always say when somebody makes a handstand in front of an orchestra and it works, who am I to say that this is rubbish? Absolutely. If it works, yeah. it yeah. works. Yeah, absolutely um, right. But so, so, um, but I, for me, it's important that every student finds his own voice in, in how he wants to communicate with the orchestra. And we have in Holland also uh, a wonderful program uh, in the National Master of Conducting, where also Ryan Bancroft was a member uh, of um, and I every now and then gave, give a masterclass also for them and they go along also uh, these students um, go along when I conduct in Holland for uh, assistant yeah. and I let them then also conduct a little bit in front of the orchestra first movement of Tchaikovsky or whatever and they um, they learn by doing and by being with an orchestra and having them around me makes me reflect also all the time about what am I doing? Mm, mm, absolutely. It's a kind of teaching yourself. Yeah. Therefore. Yeah, you are. Uh, it was exactly the same in Scotland last week. And it was a piece, a, a bit in the Mio, which I, uh, Mio La Création du Monde, which I always conduct in four. Always. Always have done. Every single time I've done it. They'd rehearsed it for me the week before and done it in two, and the orchestra just could not do it in four. They just couldn't oh. play it in four. And in the end, one of them came as near as social distancing would allow and say, Mike, last week we did it in two. Maybe we suggest you do it in two. 
but from that moment onwards, there was an open and frank and honest discussion about things. We had a piano class together, and and mm. as you say, everybody's conducting style is different. But what you should what you should never go into a lesson as a teacher and think today I'm going to teach this because it never comes around like that. You go in, you see what, how they conduct, you see what they do, and then you react to it and you give them advice. You you tell them, you know, may, may I suggest this? May I suggest that? And it is so much freer than being a violin teacher where, you know, you, you know you have to start with scales and studies uh, and and then you might get onto your pieces afterwards. It's not like that. People conduct and something could be brilliant for five minutes or something could go wrong with the upbeat at the be before anybody's made a sound. And that that's what it's like. So um, one final question, which you'll know that every conductor, because you've listened to quite a few episodes, I know, you'll know that every conductor is asked this question. And maybe you inform your students with this or maybe you don't. When you come to learn a new score, do you sit at the piano and learn it at the piano, or do you just do it with your inner ear silently at your desk? And are you a writer in? Do you use red, blue, black, or do you not write anything in it at all? What's your what's your modus operandi? My modus operandi, Mike. Um, I write quite a lot in the score. Yeah, I uh, have several phases of studying always. Yeah. The first thing is that um, in the summer, uh, during one week, I collect all the scores I could possibly grab uh, what I do next season. Yeah. And what I do has nothing to do with music and is absolutely strange and people will condemn it completely. But I start with a marking with the marker just to mark all the rehearsals uh, figures. Yes. B or one, two. Then... Um, I start listening to a recording. Um, this is nine minutes. This is 13 minutes. Here is no clarinet. There is a, no bass trombone. Um, all these administrative things where you go through. Then I just go to the th to, uh, through the string part. Okay, here is this special. I maybe need to cue here the first violins. Then I do the same with the winds. Um, very practical. I can watch a video with that mm -hmm. <laughs> during doing that. Should not tell anybody, but yeah. I could. But it's too late now. <laughs> You've told yeah, everyone. Yeah, too late now. <laughs> but, but the thing is, you you read through the score the whole time, and you get the sense of what it's about. And okay, when when that's uh, done, uh, I start reading a little bit about the the um, uh, about the composer or in the time where it was written. Um, and then I start making a harmonic analysis. Mm -hmm. I'm from the piano. I don't use the piano that often, maybe in 5% of the cases. Mm -hmm. I try to do as much from my inner ear. But up until late romantic stuff, it, it, that's okay for me. Mm -hmm. um, later, it gets more complicated, of course. <laughs> but, um, but then I, make, uh, I sing every line in the score for the phrasing that I want, for the tempo, for for where I want to go with that. And I mark all the phrasing things that I have in mind. Yeah, I have an eraser next to me when I change my mind and I work through the whole score like that. Yeah. And so it's uh, marked up enormously, no colors. I Then it's going to be much uh, more comp uh, complicated. But I mark it a lot. Yeah. And uh, also with little anecdotes or little things that, that cross my mind or little metaphors or little images or 
little stories. Uh, like I said, I'm quite a, a dramatic feeling conductor. I, mm. I, I, I always write these things in um, up to a point that you can't read anything anymore, of course. <laughs> but at that point, I feel, okay, I could be ready to conduct this. Mm. And then you oh. go to the first rehearsal and then you hope that you were right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. I, I mean, yeah. As you may well know, some conductors write very little in, but they do all of the other things that we do. Uh, I feel, and, and especially listening to your story about Richard Trimborn and the, the things that he's written in his piano on vocal scores from great conductors, be it Carlos Clyde or whoever he's worked with, these things, if you keep them and you, you keep your experiences, you know, I mean, I've written things in my scores from when I remember playing them for certain people, yes. you know, and they're, they're, they're nuggets of gold that, you know, you might forget. I might, you know, in 10 years' time, I might forget that, somebody said that in a rehearsal so it's more important that I write it in um but yeah it sounds like you know you and I go through a similar process I do some admin work two steps of admin work before I even get to put a recording or two on and then yes. I might do some research but there yeah things like I, I mark in you know I've got a, my own special marking system to do with the rehearsal numbers I draw red lines across when there's two systems and I don't want to get muddled up the boring th stuff you know yeah I used to I used to do all of that sort of thing late at night whilst playing online poker you know the, the, all of those boring jobs you can do it you know you can do it that's with exactly what I mean I could yeah. watch a video during that yeah exactly um, but, but, but weirdly but we, yeah, firstly, it's done. But weirdly, I always feel just by having my hands on the thing, doing the boring jobs like that, that some of it's going in. Some, some of the structures going in. What's on each page is going in. It, yeah, it's it needs to be done. But actually, I, if I don't do it, I feel like I'm missing something. It's it, yeah. yes, yeah. I completely agree, Mike. I yeah. completely agree. It 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 feels like you're taking along something with it. And for me, always. Um, it's very important to have an overview of the score. Yeah. So if I have an overview of all my scores or as, as much as possible um, in the summer about the next season, then I feel relieved. Mm. Um, if I, uh, because then I know I will not be in trouble. I always want to mark the scores up to a point that when, when somebody would call me to conduct Nielsen Ford tomorrow, that I would be able to do it. Absolutely. Fantastic rehearsal, but I will get through. Yeah. So I, I want to come to that point so that I can use the rest of the season and, and uh, which is most of the times pretty filled up. Then you can use that time to refine and to get deeper in the score, but not with the super, uh, with the uh, superficial things. Yeah, yeah. The, absolutely. And yeah, it means that that score, therefore, as you said, the phone could ring. Could you come in tomorrow and conduct Nielsen for, you know that sitting on your shelf is a score with all of your thoughts and you could take that rehearsal, not a problem at all. And it frees up time to learn new music and to get in deeper into other things. And, and uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we, we agree. Hurrah. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony, it's that time. It's the 10 questions. And you will know that I always start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Um, what I love is a very boring, the sound of the voice, mm. the sound of a beautiful voice. Um, and what I hate is very clearly the sound of an ambulance. Huh. The sound of an ambulance, that's the first thing I think 
And what I hate too is, um, do you use that word? M Muzak. Yeah, oh, we use um, that word. Oh, yeah. Oh, everybody yes, hates okay. me. Yeah, Muzak. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Yes, the, the, the music you hear in the background all the time when you want to concentrate on something else then that's absolutely nothing nothing for me then then i when i'm in a restaurant where there's too much uh, of this i don't go in or i even go out or <laughs> i can't stand it. <laughs> if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing when fr friends are around i would always visit try to visit them or have a lunch with them or dinner with them or family or something like that uh, and especially in the last year with Corona, I, I enjoyed so much walking just in the nature here around me in Amsterdam. I'm close to a, uh, the, the, it's the, the uh, Slotervaart and it's a beautiful area with water and, and things like that. And I love to be in a neighborhood of water and to wow. walk around water. Always when I go to the beach, um, cold or not cold, I have to get my feet in the water. Uh, water <laughs> is something special for me. So probably, yeah, nature or visiting friends. Well, I have to say I'm jealous of you because I love Amsterdam. Absolutely love it. I love the architecture. I love the vibe. I love the feeling of the place. And so, yeah, I think during coronavirus, I'd have been walking for miles around Amsterdam. Though, you know, I live in Birmingham. We've got some canals as well, but they're not quite as pretty as yours. <laughs> <laughs> Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Yeah, I have many, I have to say. I mean, Carlos Kleiber is, of course... Um, Everybody will agree on that, probably. Uh, a big, I'm a big fan also of Bernard Haitink, of yes. course, because of his clarity, because of his enormous capacity to put a big bubble around the orchestra and to get everybody in a kind of a same direction without using any words. Mm. Um, I'm also big fan of Maris Janssons. Mm. Um, I saw him lots of times rehearse here with the Concertgebouw Orchestra and I have to say I never saw in my life a person who could rehearse so effectively and not lose one minute of an orchestra um, than Maris Janssons. He had such a clear vision of what he wanted to do with his time mm. and and I, and his performances were in with the Concertgebouw, what I heard here was always very impressive. And of course, also Claudia Abado, what's, yeah. what he can do with his hands and with his energy. Yeah, that's not, that's not from this world for me. <laughs> Brilliant choices. Um, and now the question, which some conductors hate and some conductors don't seem to mind at all. Ah. And who would be a favorite current conductor? One of my absolute favorites still living conductors is Herbert Blomstedt. Mm. Of course, uh, 93 years at the moment, yeah, I think. I think so, yeah. If, if you are at 93, still in such a brilliant way thinking about music, having such mental energy also, what you send to the orchestra, yeah. always full of joy, um, really putting the score in center of everything and not anything else, mm. having such small gestures which bring so many colors 
Well, I saw him a few times rehearse here in Amsterdam, which is absolutely fabulous for me. Mm. And I have to say, I'm also a big fan of Andres Nelson's. Ah, oh, um, yes. Andres is um, for for his complete dedication to music, for his complete dedication with his full soul to music. Yeah. It's also his full body as well. I yeah. mean, having played for him, yeah. there, is, there, isn't, there, isn't, there isn't a yeah. gesture he won't use to get the sound he wants. And going all the way back to you talking about Georg Fritsch, talking about the gesture making the sound, there is a conductor, Andreas, who really will, he will do anything, and it doesn't matter how ridiculous he looks doing it, to get the sound he wants from an orchestra. And I think, yeah. Um, brilliant choice, mm. absolutely mm. brilliant choice. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? The hardest work I ever conducted? For me, it was Tristan und Isolde. Hard in, in the emotional sense of the word. Mm. To get to the essence of that piece is endless, yeah. just endless. If I should give another answer, I would say also the seventh of Mahler. Ah, yes. Yeah. Especially because, the finale as well. That finale. Ah, the finale. Yeah. It, it, to make a good concept about tempi and sound of the finale of Mahler 7, that's a challenge. And quite recently also what I found was hard, but in the end was gorgeous to do, was to conduct Korngold, Die Tote Stadt. Oh, now I am jealous. You've conducted the Tote Stadt. Well, now I'm, yes. yeah. Uh, yes. I'd, love, I'd love to conduct that piece. I'm a massive Korngold fan. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I asked for five years running for the CBSO to let me do the symphony, and finally Stephen Maddock relented and let me do it. Um, but okay. Yeah, die Tote Stadt or, or Heliana, you know, yeah, that yeah. I'd love to have a go at conducting that. Um, love to. But it's bloody difficult. It's yeah. bloody difficult. <laughs> I mean... For the orchestra, I remember a discussion with the orchestra. I did it with the North Netherlands Orchestra, where I'm principal guest conductor yeah. for the Rijs Opera here. And I remember discussions about how many rehearsals and, and uh, the musicians. I, I asked for many rehearsals because yeah. I knew how difficult it was. And uh, and the musicians said, oh, no, we, uh, we don't need so many rehearsals. Uh, and in the end, after the first rehearsal and where I just... Uh, uh, I, I can be a little bit nasty sometimes and I played the whole thing through without stopping and yeah. after one and a half hours nobody could follow anymore where we were on that on that page so the, the artistic committee came and said thank you very much um, that you put in as many rehearsals as you did mm -hmm. and I have to say the Netherlands Orchestra played it brilliantly then yeah. afterwards. It's, it's funny, in all of the concerts I've conducted with the, the CBSO, my, you know, my dear orchestra I love, I've played in, been involved with for 30 years, that concert with the symphony was the only time I ever felt that we were maybe an hour or an hour and a half short on rehearsal on it. it the finale was brilliant, but it felt like we were hanging on by our fingernails, you know, a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. And, yeah, it's, his music's so hard. I did some last week in Scotland with the Much Ado About Nothing suite, Oh great! Yeah, it's yeah. just it's Ooh. it's just so tricky, um, yeah. but but worth every second of rehearsal because it's gorgeous. Yes, it is. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Actually, two. The first is a collection of photos, mm -hmm. collection of photos uh, of friends and family. Um, as a conductor, you're on the road so many times that it's 
easy to feel a little bit disconnected from your roots. Mm. And um, I always ask for a studio or something. I am not a big fan of hotels. I mean, you still end up a lot of times in hotels, but if possible, I, I ask for a studio to get a kind of sense of normal living, to have space, to have a real feeling that you are in a in a apartment. Mm. And then I always get out my uh, collection of pictures. I don't need so many, but just that make me feel connected with with uh, my roots mm. and the other thing is and that's maybe interesting um i always take a, a book with me uh which is from benjamin zander the art of possibility um that is a fabulous book in my humble opinion about leadership and about um uh, about yeah thinking in creative possibilities mm. i can recommend that to everybody uh, benjamin zander is the conductor of the boston philharmonic orchestra he had a, has a wonderful ted talk the transformational power of classical music and um in this book are so many stories that when you feel kind of uh, without inspiration then you read this book and this book will give you the information you need. Yeah. Having seen the TED Talk, I should be buying the book. So thank you. Yes. Something you, learned today. Yeah. Everybody should read that book. It's 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 it gives you so many things to think about. And uh, I had a, a course a million years ago by by him. And um, yeah, this book I always have with me just in case I need inspiration. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Hmm. Interesting. I think it's kind of real life and maybe even quite serious. Hmm. Um, I'm a person, I'm a people person. And I like to connect with people. And if I would have the possibility to change something about... Um, a conductor it would be the fact that the distance between him and the players uh, would be non-existent mm. um, I'm a person I go quickly to players I talk with them I, I really want to establish a, an atmosphere of making music together mm. really together and then as a conductor as a primus inter pares and yeah, I don't know if I formulated well, but... No, the... you formulated it perfectly because I know exactly where you're coming from. I'm exactly the same as you. Uh, I, you know, I'm in the end, we're all in the same room making music together. I don't want this old school thing of them and no. them and us, that, the, that you don't speak to musicians. You know, there, there's still this attitude in certain areas where if you try and talk to musicians, you're being too pally and too friendly and therefore you cannot be a great conductor. I personally think that's bullshit. And I think that to get the best results is to speak to the musicians. And so to shrink that gap between us would be brilliant. So you've, you, yes. what, you, what you said was perfect uh, and you couldn't have put it better. Absolutely. Okay, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Ah, 
difficult. Hmm. Maybe I would have ended up in the information management if if Jacques didn't uh, stretch me. <laughs> um, but I think now at the moment, I pretty like working with people and helping them. Mm. So a little coaching, a little supporting of young talent. But it would always be something with music. Mm. Mm. Is that an uh, answer you would take? <laughs> I will accept that absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, part of why a role as a conductor is to be a coach, is to be a yes. mentor, is to be a confidant. But it doesn't have to be. You know, you can be do that in any way, shape, or form there is. And actually, I think at conservatory level, more time could be spent on the non-musical things, the things that you know we all need to know when we leave the you know the shelter of the conservatory and go out into the big world and it's not necessarily about the shape of phrasing or the architecture of a symphony or whatever it can be about all sorts of things it can be about the psychological state it can be about you know organizing your diary any all that sort of stuff so yeah perfectly acceptable absolutely right if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink well i would eat sushi oh <laughs> I love sushi. I am a big sushi addict. Yeah. Back to the time in, in Hagen, where we had a big sushi restaurant next door, which was our second canteen. Hmm. And, and, and yes, and if you ask, what would you drink? Uh, maybe not together, but I am uh, completely fond of cidre. I know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cider. Mm. Cider. Uh, um, it's a little bit dangerous because you drink it like lemonade. <laughs> but but it is fantastic and i love it dearly uh, and have you had any of the west country of england ciders the the stuff that goes into the barrel at about eight percent and then comes out about a month later at about 11 percent? no not yet i yeah. i had the the, the 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 ciders in france yeah well, uh, in uh, Brittany and uh, pays la loire and uh, which was where they were fantastic, I have to say. <laughs> well, if you're ever in Birmingham, I know just the place to take you where I can uh, uh, buy you a pint of, of uh, some very, very, very individual cider. And it would be a joy. Much as it's been chatting to you over the last hour or so. Thank you, Anthony. And as I said, next time you're ever here, uh, the ciders are on me. Great. Thank you very much, Mike. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with the first Danish conductor to appear on the podcast. Over a very distinguished career, he's held title positions in Denmark, Sweden, Italy and the United States. And since 2016, he's been Chief Conductor of the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>